You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Today we've got a couple of interesting guests. Tom Verducci from Sports Illustrated is going to talk to us about Zach Greinke. And Ben Bauber is going to talk to us about everything statistical. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Zach Greinke is on a 43 and two-third inning scoreless streak. He starts against the Mets on Friday night. Uh, I know you've recently talked to him. What have you seen about Zach Greinke that's made this streak so much better than his already elite career? Well, it's amazing the way this guy just continues to kind of reinvent himself and get better while doing it. He doesn't have the fastball he had when he was younger, but the changeup that he's developed now, he calls it a power changeup. He throws it 89-90. To me, it's one of the nastiest pitches in the game. And to me, that's what has brought Zach Greinke to a whole different level. His changeup before was okay. It was good typical slower type changeup, but now that he just throws it as hard as he can, it actually acts almost like a split-fingered fastball, and hitters just don't pick it up. It's interesting. We talk a lot about pitchers needing a great separation of miles per hour between their changeup and their fastball. Well, Zach is proving the exact opposite because his 14 fastball is actually losing velocity, and his changeup is gaining velocity. Now there's only a three- or four-mile-an-hour difference. Uh, it just speaks to what this guy can do with the baseball because he can put the baseball where he wants virtually every time with every pitch. And I'm glad you brought up the changeup. Uh, by the StatCast numbers, his changeup is the fourth hardest in baseball behind Carrasco, Strasburg, and Felix Hernandez, uh, and that's pretty impressive company to be in. And I totally agree with you about the fastball. If you, if you look at the chart, you can see fastball velocity going down, changeup velocity going up. Uh, and you know, As you said, that really kind of turns the common sense on its head about how hard the changeup needs to be behind the fastball. Yeah, I think the Felix comp is actually a good one with the changeup because he's another one with a power changeup. And what Zach has now started to do with that changeup, too, he throws it to both lefties and righties, but now he's starting to throw that pitch inside to right-handers. He actually did it to Adam Jones at the All-Star game, completely locked him up. Uh, It shows what kind of confidence he has in that pitch, first of all. Uh, And second of all, the command he has with that pitch. I mean, you will rarely, if ever, see Zach Ranke leave a changeup up over the middle of the plate. It's just incredible that he can just dot the I and cross the T anytime he wants. So you wrote uh, earlier this week that hitters were getting pretty angry about the strike zone, and you specifically talked about Bryce Harper talking about Zach Greinke. Uh, and what's interesting about that is that, the, as you said, the facts don't really back up that the strike zone is getting wider, but Zach Greinke is throwing uh, almost two-thirds of his pitches on the outside half of the plate, outside third of the plate, excuse me. That's the highest in MLB. So I'm interested in how do you think we can reconcile those facts in that you're right that it's not getting wider, but obviously Greinke thinks it is, and he's aiming for that area. Yeah, and it's interesting. I did talk to Zach about that, and really that's, that's, what, that's generally his put-away area down and away. And he said actually he's done that so much that that's why, one reason why he's gone to the uh, changeup inside the right-handers because a lot of right-handed hitters will lean out over the plate. I actually think sometimes that works to his advantage, the way a hitter gets so down and away conscious, the way they did for Tom Glavin, that you wind up chasing pitches. And, and like I said, he's so good being able to stretch that the plate that a lot of these pitchers, the pitches that he's throwing down and away, or it's fastball, changeup, or slider, are actually balls. But hitters get so conscious of down and away, that pitch may start in the zone and winds up out of the zone. So I think it's actually symptomatic of what I think is going on with the strike zone. I don't think umpires are calling more strikes, but I think what pitchers are throwing now in terms of movement plus velocity, especially down in the zone, is greater than it's ever been. You know, that, that plain old four-seam fastball that stays on one plane, you don't see that anymore. Everything's cutting and running and generally at the knees and below. 
So I think that's why hitters are having such difficulty. I think it has more to do with pitchers than umpires. Well, I think you make a great point because while Granke's pitches may look like they're coming in and be a strike and then end up out of the zone, he's got a career low walk rate. It's only 4.3%. So even though you know he's maybe not throwing as many strikes, it certainly isn't ending up in more walks because he's just not letting hitters be that patient against him. Well, he also is able, and whenever you see someone with those kind of walk rates, you can look at their delivery and you know it's repeatable. Uh, the ability to repeat a delivery really is goes hand-in-hand hand with the ability to command the baseball. And Zach Granke is a little bit like Craig Maddox in that regard in that you know mostly every pitch comes out of the same release point, but the mechanics are just so smooth and repeatable that he's able to put the ball where he wants. He's just a joy to watch. I think if you are you know, wanting to learn how to pitch and how to command a baseball and interested in mechanics, that's a pretty good model to pick. Let's, uh, let's ask the obvious question. I think everybody in the world knows that he's going to opt out at the end of the season. Where does he end up next season? Yeah, I think I'd be shocked if he signs with the American League team. You know, Zach really loves the all-around National League game. He loves to bat, loves to run the bases. Um, you know, if he could have it his way, I think he'd be playing shortstop for the Dodgers instead of pitching. But um, I do think it will be somewhere in the National League. I think the Dodgers are probably the front runners because they have the resources to pay him what he wants, and I think he does like pitching there. I think the next option would be the San Francisco Giants. I think they'd be a great fit for him. I, I don't see him in a place like New York with the Mets. I don't think they would pay that kind of money, first of all. Um, but I do think probably on the West Coast with one of those two teams, and possibly San Diego, they've shown themselves to be a player the last year or so. Um, but I, I'd start with the Dodgers and the Giants. I think he winds up with one of those two teams. Yeah, and I think if he were to go to the Giants, not only would it horrify Dodger fans for obvious reasons, but because next year, the 2016 rotation, the Dodgers have one healthy pitcher under contract, and that's Clayton Kershaw, because everybody else is either a free agent or injured or, or needs to opt out. So obviously that's going to be a completely rebuilt rotation uh, by this time next year. Who do you see them getting yeah, for the end of the I, month? and I think maybe the rebuild starts toward the trade deadline if you're talking about Cole Hamels. I mean, you want him on your team anyway, but it is something of an insurance policy in case you're not able to re-sign Zach Greinke. Yeah, and I, I agree with that for sure. So Greinke goes against the Mets on Friday night. That's obviously a very friendly team for a pitcher to be facing again. Uh, let's, let's pivot quickly to StatCast. And so I was doing a little research today, and I was surprised you actually wrote one of the very first uh, it wasn't even called StackS, but one of the very first articles about TrackMan, who fuels this technology, way back in April of 2011. Uh, you wrote about perceived velocity and extension and spin rate in regard to David Robertson. And you wrote, it's easy to envision a day soon when effective velocity and spin rate become routine parts of the scouting vernacular. Do you think that's come true? Uh, is, is what you predicted four years ago kind of becoming more routine? I think I think it really has. I think maybe not in terms of your average fan, maybe not you know mainstream numbers like you know you can relate to a 300 hitter or a 3.0 ERA. But I think it's certainly among the baseball community. I think the standards are well known, and we're obviously learning more as the data comes in and how to use the information. But there's no doubt that it's changing the way not just fans look at a game, but people in the industry look at a game, and specifically scouting. Um, you know, a lot of things I think uh, the analytic departments all around baseball are anxious to get a full season worth of data and crunch the numbers and, you know, begin to understand, um, you know, what complements what we see with our naked eye and what challenges it, whether it's say, hey, this guy's a great outfielder, he gets a good first step. Maybe StatCast shows that its first step is really not that great. Or maybe it does confirm that it is. And those are the kinds of things I think, you know, almost like a scout bringing a stopwatch to the baseball field or a radar gun for a pitcher. 
Um, those kind of numbers, the StatCast numbers, I, I think, if not already, will be part of the everyday language of baseball. So you were actually on the very first broadcast uh, earlier this season, the Cardinals-Nationals game, where MLB Network used the StatCast stats. Uh, and what did you think about the reaction to that? Did you hear positive feedback from fans who were interested in more, or were they unhappy with the way it was presented? How did that go for you? I think the sophisticated fan was understood that this was a rollout of something, a brand new technology. And with any new technologies, there's going to be some some bugs in the system. Um, it wasn't perfect. I think a lot of it too has to do with even the broadcasters and how it's presented. Um, and contextualizing things is very important instead of just putting up numbers there. And the average fan is saying, "Well, tell me what it means." And that's the job of the broadcasters too. So we're on a learning curve as well. Um, but I actually think if you really want to sort of dumb it down, it, a lot of times it looks like a video game, and I think especially with the younger vi viewer, that resonates. You know, a lot of these people are introduced now uh, at six, seven years old, maybe not by actually playing the game, but through video games. And I think as telecasts more resemble video games, a younger generation, a younger viewer is totally comfortable with that. So while the rest of us think, man, this is revolutionary, it's groundbreaking, you know, maybe the young fan says, hey, that's pretty cool, but, you know, I see a lot of that in my video game. You know, that's fascinating. I've talked to a lot of people about StatCast, and no one's really positioned it like that as being kind of specifically that's something the younger generation would really, you know, get interested in. Uh, and I like that a lot because we hear, what, nonstop, we got to get the younger generation back in, we got to get the younger generation back in. Uh, and maybe that's a, another application of it, you know, just beyond, obviously, like identifying great players is appealing to a younger generation. And uh, I think that that's you know, fruitful territory that maybe hasn't been explored yet. Tom Verducci from Sports Illustrated, frequent guest on MLB Network. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. Take care. We continue now with the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Joining me, Dr. Ben Baumer, former stats analyst for the New York Mets. Ben, thanks so much for your time. Thanks. Great to be here. Ben, you, I guess, quote-unquote, started the Mets analytics department in 2004, or, you know, at least kind of brought it into the future. At the time, not all teams had a stats department. How far ahead of the curve do you think it was at the time to be doing what you were doing? <laughs> yeah, okay, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, it's it's hard to say precisely because we don't know exactly what other teams were doing. But, I, you know, I think at that time we were certainly in the top ten in baseball, maybe in the top five. Um, you know, when I came on, I think um, – so this was, as you said, 2004. Uh, Moneyball was published in 2003, written about the 2002 season. Um, and, you know, I was the first person to have a position like that with the Mets, so there wasn't, there wasn't a lot there in terms of infrastructure. Um, but we were able to, to build some things up pretty quickly. Um, uh, and, yeah, so I think at that time, you know, we were, we were, we were definitely ahead of the curve. You know, Moneyball, you mentioned, was part of the reason you were brought on. And in that the book and then the movie, it paints a very much of a war between scouts and stats. And I imagine maybe that's the way things were, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But that's probably not really true any longer, is it? Like, most organizations are very well integrated. I think that's right. I mean, uh, so first of all, it, uh, I think that angle, that kind of like stats versus scouts angle, was, was always kind of overblown. Um, you know, I, th I think it was over-dramatized. In the movie, it, it's not to say that that sentiment did not exist, or that there weren't, you know, particular scouts or front office people who, you know, weren't really interested in the statistical point of view. Um, but yeah, so certainly, as you said, over the last ten or fifteen years, I think that war, whatever it was, <laughs> I think that war has been won. And um, yeah, I mean, I'd be surprised to hear about, 
you know, fat people getting a hard, get, like being given a hard time these days in, in front offices. Did you find that it got easier for you as time went on because obviously the statistical analysis became more accepted or more difficult just because every other team became good at it as well and it was maybe a little harder to stand out? Yeah, I think there was a little of both. I mean, um, so one thing that was really interesting for me was to learn more about scouting. And, and um, you know, when I started, I really didn't know much or anything about scouting. And, and at first I was somewhat skeptical because that's sort of the point of view that I think a lot of statistical analysts come in with. Um, and, you know, I, I really had the benefit of learning from, from people who really knew what they were doing, like Al Goldis and Bill Livesey and Brian Lamb and Sandy Johnson. And, uh, you know, the more I learned about scouting, I learned both that I couldn't do it very well, <laughs> but also that the people that could do it really well were definitely contributing something meaningful. Um, and so I, I think that part um, was interesting for me to, to kind of watch that evolve. Well, you know, it's interesting you talk about the uh, the scouts you worked with and for because you worked for three very different general managers, right? Duquette, Minaya, yeah, Alderson, yeah. coming from very different backgrounds. Yeah. I think Minaya was a very yeah. good scout. Alderson, maybe not at all. Did that kind of inform the impact uh, or influence you might have had? I'm sure it did at some level. I mean, I, I think, you know, again, so certainly what you're saying is true. Um, you know, Omar and Sandy have a, about as different background as you, as you can imagine in baseball. Um but, you know, to infer from that that, like, Omar wasn't interested in stats and Sandy really depends on them, I think is just not true. Uh, Omar was very much interested in, in what statistical analysis had to say. Um, and, and Sandy, I think you're right, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't pretend to be a scout. He recognizes that as something that he's not, you know, it's not really in his skill set. Um, and I think that gives him, that does give him a little bit of a different perspective because he... Uh, in general, doesn't necessarily go based on his own evaluations. So somebody like Omar, who is a scout, he's always going to have a personal opinion about a player. And I think Sandy is very objective in a way that, um, that frankly, most people in life are not. When you, uh, when you started there, what sort of metrics were most important to you in evaluating players? I assume at no point were you ever, oh, batting average, pitcher wins. Uh, what kind of stood out to you in 2004, and how did that change over time, maybe up to the point you left? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, when we started out, a lot of it, so first of all, it, it's not really about a single stat. Um, I don't think we ever focused uh, our attention on a single stat so much. It, it was more about trying to use statistics to understand the player. And so, um, you know, at that time, the idea of dips and, um, you know, batting average on balls in play, you know, those ideas had been around in the stat community for a few years, but they were still pretty new. And, um, you know, just trying to integrate that way of thinking uh, into the rest of the front office uh, was, uh, you know, it took some time. And I think that that, that, theory and that way of thinking, so thinking more about strikeouts and walks and home runs and, and less about, um, you know, hits, um, that, that motivated a lot of what we were trying to do at that time. Well, what's always fascinated me about the, the stats we have now is it helps to get away from like outcome-based analysis and more into maybe performance-based right. analysis. And right. That's what StatCast is exciting about because it's really the first time in the public we've had any of this hitting data, like exit velocity, launch angle, that sort yeah. of thing. 
But I know that internally, you and, and others like you had hit effects for years, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a hitting version of pitch effects. How does what's yeah. out there now kind of compare with what you had, and how are you able to use that? Well, um, yeah, I think you know, hit effects definitely represents a, a different window into what's happening than the typical play-by-play data for exactly the reasons you laid out, that, that you do now have the ability to model um, you know what the batter is actually doing with the ball, and not so much what's happening afterwards. Um, I think the real innovation with Statcast, and, and I haven't had a chance to look carefully at the data myself yet, but um, is on the fielding side, where I think people have known for several years that um, we've known like what kinds of models we would want to build if we had the data that we wanted. We just didn't have it, and now, hopefully, I think we have it. Um, so that that certainly changes things. Um, so if I'm not really sure if you're still kind of up to date now that you're out of the game and like reading on fan graphs and baseball perspectives and all that, but when you read any public baseball analysis, uh, even the best of it, do you ever shake your head and go, well, yeah, we kind of had that internally five, ten years ago? <laughs> yeah, there's some of that. I mean, you know, but I think a lot of things, a lot of things changed. I, th- I think what's changed for me personally is um, trying to think more about statistical models. Um, you know, so just, um, you know, 10 to 15 years ago when we were looking at this, a lot of it was based on, you know, just computing summary statistics and looking at um, putting things in bins and computing averages across bins and things like that. And I think, um, you know, now what's more interesting to me are, are real, like, continuous, smooth, and parametric statistical models and, and trying to see you know, whether, whether we can learn more from something that's a little bit more sophisticated mathematically. You know, I think what's interesting about making this work on the field isn't so much about coming up with the data and accumulating the data, but putting it into practice. And, you know, I think the Pirates are pretty famous for having, like, a real big buy-in that the players are on board with, here's why we're shifting, no, we don't care about your batting average, that sort of thing. Did you ever, you know, get that from some players who were really interested in that and wanted to know more about it and understand it? Yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, in my role with the Mets, I didn't interact with the players all that often, um, but I did interact with the coaches, and certainly there were certain coaches who, um, you know, were more or less interested in that. So, in particular, uh, Rick Peterson, when I got there, um, it's like, you know, he knew exactly what he wanted to know. Uh, he he could tell you exactly what he wanted you to show him, you know. Um, so it was clear that, like, he had thought about what information was going to be valuable to him, um, and um, and then he would actually review it. So, I, I mean, I had Rick Peterson, like, catch bugs in the reports that I was generating. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's he was actually looking that carefully at the numbers. Yeah, no, that's impressive. I don't imagine there's that many coaches across the game who would be able to, you know, identify that in, in your code. Right. Uh, yeah, I wanted to talk exactly. quickly about another project you're working on, uh, or were previously working yeah. on, called Open War. Uh, and yeah. if, if I understand this correctly, that it, one of the issues with, with war is that it's been t- being taken almost too literally, right, where people may see 3.5 and think that that's actually better than 3.3, uh, when it's really not because it's more of an estimate, right? And is that something that Open War is trying to correct for? Yeah, that's right. I, and, I, you know, I think that's sort of a larger issue uh, in, the, in the stat community that, um, and it's not just baseball, it's, it's everything, but, you know, we get so caught up in these, estimates that we forget that they are in fact estimates um and you know it's like one of the things that made made nate silver's work so impressive i think to people was that 
he did actually show the distribution of outcomes, right? It wasn't just that, like, Obama's going to win the election. It was that here's the probability that Obama's going to win the election based on this distribution. Um, and so that, that's kind of what we're trying to do with open war. And I think, I think there's a recognition on, on the part of the people that are actually, you know, producing it. So, I mean, Dave Cameron has written about this. Um, but the error estimates that are given are kind of off the cuff, and, and they themselves are estimates. And so, you know, with this, we're just trying to do something that was a little bit more um, programmatic or systematic in terms of estimating the error. So what's the next step for open war? Like, when can we, the public, expect to see, you know, the output of that? Yeah. Um, so the paper is out. Um, the paper is, is, uh, was published in the journal Quantitative Analysis in Sports. Uh, so you can read that. And the package, so the R package that supports the computation and the data collection is, is on GitHub. So you can download that. Um, and we are working very hard on trying to get that on CRAN as soon as possible. Um, and once that happens, then, you know, I'd like to turn some attention to, to yeah, setting up some kind of a, a feed or website where um, people can look at this on the fly because the software will enable us to recompute it, you know, on the fly, basically. Very cool. Uh, ben, earlier this year, you were a participant in ESPN Magazine's Great Analytics Rankings. Uh, which yeah. generated a lot of buzz around the internet. How how did you kind of a, approach that project? Like, obviously, you have not been inside all of these front offices. Uh, you know, what what helped you to kind of put that ranking together? Yeah, it was uh, it was a really fun project for me to work on. Actually, um, mainly it was talking to people I know. You know, so I got on the phone. I talked to uh, people that people that I haven't talked to in many years, and people that I didn't know that I you know got in t contact with uh, through others. Um, you know, and we did research in terms of like scouring the media guides and things like that. Um, you know, and so we, when we were trying to formulate how we were going to do that project, you know, we we talked about trying to build a computational model. You know, like you have this many employees and blah blah blah, and you get some kind of score. And we just realized that uh, we didn't think that that would get us any closer to the truth than trying to come up with some kind of holistic assessment of, of what we know about that team. Um, and so a lot of that was, you know, I would talk to people on the phone and try to get a sense of, you know, who was there and what they were doing and, um, and that kind of stuff. Uh, ben, one last question for you. And obviously we can't end without talking about the Mets offense very briefly. Obviously, <laughs> sure. Mets fans are just screaming for a bat. Uh, and I'm not going to ask you who you'd go out and get, but I, I'd like to know, where are you still right. in the front office? How would you attack that problem to give the best advice you could? <laughs> Yeah, um, no, it's a good question. Um, you know, I think you you still got to be thinking in the long term, and I'm sure that Sandy is. I know um, I know Mets fans are, are clamoring for for action, um, but but this is exactly the kind of situation where you can potentially make a bad deal. And I think that you know this happens every year in July, and it's a very hard question. But you really have to ask yourself, like, are you a playoff team this year or not? And, um, you know, in the case of the Mets, I think uh, most of the uh, preseason predictions had them in the 83-84 win range. And I'm not sure that we've seen anything to dissuade us from that assessment. And if that's true, then is that a playoff team? Um, and so I, th I think that's going to color the way that, 
that Sandy and everyone was thinking about this. Well, I guess that's one thing that has actually changed since you were there is the the addition of the second wild card. So I guess that's the difference yeah. between like the odds of making the playoffs, but the odds of actually having a, a good chance to progress in the playoffs, right? Like you could be the wild, the road team in the, the coin flip wild card game. And is that valuable? And I imagine that would have to factor into the decision making as well. I'm sure. I'm sure. And it only makes it harder, unfortunately. I mean, I, you know, if I were a team, I wouldn't want to face the Mets in the playoffs. That's for sure. <laughs> um, you know, the, the top of the rotation is, is pretty outstanding. Um, but yeah, you know, as you said, the, the question is, are they going to get there? And, Obviously, losing David Wright was a is a huge blow, um, but you know I've been I've been sort of heartened by some of the, the way that some of the guys are playing. Um, so I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. <laughs> Great stuff, Dr. Ben Bomber, formerly of the Mets, professor of statistics at Smith College. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks to our guest, Tom Verducci of Sports Illustrated, Dr. Ben Bomber of Smith College, and formerly of the New York Mets. This has been another edition of the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Catch you next week.